Bienvenue. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 14, The Louvre, Paris's world-renowned, absolutely massive art gallery. With its 35,000 plus works of art, really the gold standard for art museums everywhere. The one of which the painter Cezanne said, the Louvre is the book from which we learn to read. So its role as, yes, somewhere for the general public to look at art and enjoy it, but also very much somewhere for anybody interested in art and wishing to be a practitioner can go to learn from centuries of previous works. So the plan for the episode then, a little history first, going to have a look at how this massive collection was built up, and then comes the problem, what to talk about, how to select from all those thousands and thousands of exhibits. So the way I've decided to go is I'm going to pick two or three non-French, very, very famous things, talk about those very briefly, and then I'm going to focus principally on the French items in the museum. So that would be both the history that you can learn from visiting some of the apartments and rooms in the building, and very much the French paintings too. The collection spans everything from the 14th century up until 1848, room after room, even just in that section, and I'm going to pick out a very few paintings which I think you really, really shouldn't miss. So then, we talked about the history of the building in a previous episode, its role as a palace from about 1200 onwards, and the various people who added to it. The list of people who played a role in building up its art collection does contain some of the old favourites, François I, Catherine de Medici, Henry IV, Louis XIII and XIV, and, of course, Napoleon. And we'll come to those in a minute. But first of all, you might be wondering where the name the Louvre actually came from. Not an easy question to answer. There are various theories about that. I think my favourite one is the idea that this building took so long to complete. You might remember from the previous episode that the Venetian ambassador was quoted as saying that he really thought if this building ever were to be finished, and everything in his tone suggested he thought that might never be the case, if it ever were to be finished, it really would be, quote, one of the world's most beautiful edifices. And so, because of this long-standing joke that it really was a building site, but it was known in French as l'oeuvre, the work, implication being the work which is still in progress. So from l'oeuvre, you could get to the Louvre. That's certainly as plausible an explanation as any which I read. So we talked before about the building being the seat of political power in Paris, the place from which the kings did their governing. But alongside all of that, it gradually developed a reputation too as a cultural focus. One of the first kings for whom that was the case was Francois I, ruling at the beginning of the 16th century, because he began to use the buildings as a place to store his personal art collection. So gradually paintings were acquired and displayed People were invited to admire them. Artists were also invited. He summoned Leonardo da Vinci, no less, from Milan. And Leonardo duly arrived, brought some of his paintings, and generally added to the idea that the Louvre was a gathering place for people interested in art. Louis XIV, who also liked to spend lots of money on anything which would enhance his reputation and make him look cultured, encouraged artists to live there and to work in the palace, for which privilege he sometimes gained some of their paintings and added them to the growing collection. A few years after Louis's death, in 1725, somebody got the idea of holding salons in the Louvre, so actual art exhibitions, paintings collected together for people to look at. At this stage, we're still talking about private viewings, 
So a particular artist perhaps would be invited to form a collection and this would be put on display and visitors to the palace would be shown round it. From the 1740s onwards, people began to speculate about the idea of letting the actual public in and this happened eventually in 1793, a year, as you will remember, just after the French Revolution, so at the time when many things which had been royal property or royal prerogatives were passing to people in general. So the collections were spruced up, the building was open to the public, and the Louvre's role as an art gallery began to really take shape. Of course, when you do the history of anything in Paris, you always get to the point where Napoleon plays a role, and here too, he had no small influence. Not least because when he was roaming Europe, conquering things, he made a point of getting his troops to take, steal if you prefer to put it bluntly, works of arts from churches and galleries and send them back to Paris, where many of them were collected in the Louvre and put on display. It has to be admitted that some of them were sent back after Napoleon's death, but many weren't, and so in the Louvre today you will find paintings which other countries could rightfully claim were actually theirs. Napoleon also played another role, though, with the Louvre, in that he set about sprucing up the building itself. He had a whole new wing built, the North Wing, especially because the collection was growing because he kept sending things back to them, and he wanted to be sure there was space to display it all. So a long and illustrious line of people who had an influence, and the last one on the list is from the 1980s, the French president, François Mitterrand, who made revamping the Louvre and bringing it up to date one of his grand projets. You might know that French presidents tend to have grand projets, big projects, grand projects perhaps. For Mitterrand, there was a library and it was here at the Louvre. For President Pompidou, of course, there's the Pompidou Centre. I wonder what President Macron will leave Parisians. Anyway, Mitterrand was keen that the Louvre should be made even more splendid in his name. So he started by expanding the space. He discovered that the finance ministry were occupying quite a lot of offices in the North Wing, so he sent them all packing, looking for new headquarters, so that there would be more display room, more space for all the treasures, some of which were having to be kept in storage. But that wasn't all. Controversially, he engaged the architect, I.M. Pei, and let him loose on redesigning the entrance to the museum. Hence the arrival of Le Pyramide, the Pyramid, that futuristic design plunked in the middle of the main courtyard, which, as the rough guide put it, quote, erupted from the centre of the Cour Napoléon like a visitor from another architectural planet. Definitely fair to say that it divided opinion. Some people thought it was innovative, that it was perfect for the space, that its 673 panes of glass were just the perfect thing to reflect the surfaces of the much more ancient buildings all around it. Others, of course, thought it was incongruous, moaned about the disnification of a historic monument, made it very clear that they thought this clash of the classical and the ultra-modern really wasn't a good idea. But it was here to stay, and I think it's fair to say that today it's pretty much accepted. It's yet another of those buildings which says Paris from a million postcards. It's actually very easy to find lots of statistics about the Louvre to emphasise its size and its importance. And some of them do have a point to make. So I read, for example, that if you were to walk the length of every corridor inside, you would in fact total up eight miles of walking. 300 different rooms, and if you think it's going to be difficult to find your way around, a good start is to realise that these are spread through three main buildings, three wings, 
when you stand in the courtyard, you can see that it's a U-shaped building, so a wing to each side and one at the back, and that each of those has four floors. So if you can ascertain what sort of thing you want to see and work out which building and which floor it's on, that will make finding it massively simpler. There are lots of very different departments. There's obviously the huge one of painting. There's a whole other department devoted to sculpture. There are antiquities, there are decorative arts. And from the 500 or so original paintings, which François Ier, François I, stored in the building, the collection has grown today to about 35,000 works of art. They represent every century from the 6th to the 19th and are viewed by 15,000 people a day, 70% of whom are foreign. If your eyes are starting to glaze over, just one more statistic which I think does stick in the mind and that's the fact that I read that if you were to devote 100 days to visiting the Louvre, go early in the morning, stay all day and to keep going and to spend 30 seconds in front of each work then the 100 days would just about be enough to see everything there, but only 30 seconds apiece, mind. And it didn't mention meal breaks. So all of that adds up to the idea that if you're going to get anything out of your visit, you do need some sort of plan. Which sort of art do you want to see, from roughly which century, and have you got a map to help you find where that is? For the purposes of this episode, I thought perhaps I'd go the way of all things French and home in on the French history and the French history of art that you can learn here at the Louvre. But just before we start that, I've picked out from the many, many thousands, three individual attractions which are world famous, often the ones that people go especially to see, and none of which are French. So a brief word about those, and then we'll get back to the main business. The first one, of course, of course, has to be the Mona Lisa, that esoteric little painting with a massive reputation which is actually only just slightly bigger than a piece of A2 paper. Painted by Leonardo da Vinci, and so Italian in origin, with perhaps a seemingly curious title, until you're told that Mona is a short version of Madonna, Lady, and so it simply means Lady Lisa. So why is it that this one really rather small painting has its own bulletproof screen, its own bodyguards, and is a picture which, I'm told, some people pay to get into the Louvre to photograph. They literally go in, take a picture of that, possibly after having queued a little while to get close to it, and then go out again. It is quite hard to explain. I think most people would agree it's not the most artistically accomplished painting in the whole gallery. It's not the most beautiful. So why does it inspire such interest? Not just a present day thing either. We're told that when Napoleon moved into the Tuileries Palace, he's said to have hung this painting in his bedroom, picked it out from all the others, that was the one he wanted near him. One reason why it's popular, I think, is just the fact that we're not entirely sure who the sitter actually was. Most experts have now decided she was the wife of one Francesco del Gicondo, but that's not totally certain, so you can stand in front of it and still wonder, who could she have been? Incidentally, in Italian, the painting is also known as La Gioconda, based on her surname, if that's who she was. And that's translated into the word that the French use for it, la joconde. Joconde being, of course, an indication that this lady was smiling, rather happy. And that's perhaps the second thing that you can say about why it's so popular. People like to stand in front of it and think, what is she actually smiling about? Is that in fact a smile? Is she really happy? Or is she slightly perplexed about something? Wondering these things keeps the viewer interested. 
The French writer Théophile Gautier had something to say about her expression. He said she, quote, mocks the viewer with such sweetness, grace and superiority that we feel timid, like schoolboys in the presence of a duchess. Perhaps it's partly just the fact that Leonardo da Vinci was so famous even in his own day, and yet he didn't do all that many paintings, being also a sculptor and a producer of so many drawings and plans for wonderful machines and so on. So the few paintings that are left to us have a particular importance as being one of the not very many of his works that we can get to know. People noticed it as soon as he'd painted it because he used a new technique called sfumato, which involved layering up paint, several washes, one on top of the other, which helped him create a slightly 3D effect. Hadn't been done before, and so people noticed that and talked about it. And the last possible reason that I've seen is its interesting history. This painting was actually stolen in 1911, disappeared for a full two years. The story was all over the newspapers. People thought that one of the world's finest works of art was lost forever. And so when it did finally turn up, they were very pleased to see it. But certainly one of the, if not the, most world-famous painting in existence. So even though you know it's not huge, if you haven't seen it before, you probably won't be able to resist going, and if necessary, queuing to see it. Almost as famous is that lovely statue, the Venus de Milo, a Greek sculpture created at least a hundred years before the birth of Christ, which has been through the ages and still is today seen as a representation of classic female beauty in its very best form. When I saw it, it was positioned at the end of a corridor, nicely lit from behind, gazing serenely back down the corridor towards us. People seem very ready to overlook the fact that both its arms are missing. And in fact, more than that, it's thought that originally it would have been coloured, painted in bright colours, and it would have been draped in jewellery, probably a bracelet, earrings and a headband. There are little holes on the statue showing where they would have been fixed, but they've all disappeared. So while what you're looking at is a world-famous image, it isn't actually what the artist produced in the first place. We may all think it's lovely, but there were people who didn't. One John Maine, visiting in 1814, wrote the following about it. Quote, there appears to me to be nothing in this which I could not have easily imagined within the power of the chisel. I do not venture to criticise her form or object to the size of her head. I take it for granted the proportions are perfect, the finishing without fault but I cannot perceive any life in this statue. Well, each to their own opinion, but to me the whole point of it is its serene beauty and its lovely stillness. And thirdly, before we get to the French works, I picked out actually two items which go together, Michelangelo's slaves. Two sculptures, the dying slave and the rebellious slave, which were a commission which he received in 1513 from Pope Julius II. Pope Julius was envisaging these two statues on his own tomb, although this is in fact not where they ended up, because it's believed that Pope Julius changed his mind. It's said that Michelangelo visualised these figures very clearly as being imprisoned in huge blocks of marble, and that he thought his task was to remove all the excess stone so that he could free them. And they too are two of the very most frequently visited statues in the whole of the Louvre. So, moving on to all things French, before we get to the paintings, I wanted to just mention the fact that you can learn quite a lot of French history just by some of the parts of the building and some of the rooms which you can look round. If you go down to the basement of the Sully Wing, for example, you can see the foundations of a medieval fortress built for 
King Philippe Auguste in the 12th century. You can see the remains of the moat and the dungeons. And from the 13th century, the remains of the Salle Saint-Louis, which became the main building in the middle of the fortress. You can visit Henry II's vestibule if you want to see some Renaissance splendour. From the rule of Louis Fourteenth in the 1660s, there's the Galerie d'Apollon, so Apollo's gallery, commissioned by Louis, who was very keen on having his image as the Sun King replicated and put on display all over the place. So he commissioned an artist to work on this room and paint it in his honour. Although, in fact, it all took longer than they'd imagined. Twenty different artists worked on it over the years, and it wasn't until 1851 that it was finally completed by Delacroix, who painted the central panel, which is entitled Apollo Slaying the Serpent Python. Up there, too, you can see some of the French crown jewels from monarchy days. Particularly splendid is the Couronne de Louis XV, so Louis XV's crown. Rows of pearls, two each of emeralds, sapphires, rubies, topazes, sparkling diamonds in between them all, some of them in the pattern of the fleur de lys, the lily flowers which have been the emblem of the French monarchy since the 12th century. From a later period, you can look at the apartments of Napoleon III, Second Empire style, which means chandeliers, stucco work, gilded decorations, silk curtains, velvet furniture, all topped off with hugely ornate painted ceilings. Definitely a sight to behold. As for the paintings, if you decide that what you'd really like to do is see some French paintings, there are three or four I've picked out which illustrate particular moments in French history. The earliest one, actually painted in 1833, but representing a date in 1572, is a painting called La Seine de la Saint-Barthélemy, a depiction of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre from 1572, a day on which the Catholics rose up against Protestants and Huguenots, murdered many of them and chased many, many more out of the country. Such a realistic painting that you almost think you're there and you can certainly witness the horrors which happened on that day in very graphic detail. Two of our old favourites who like to big themselves up on any occasion are both here with portraits which they commissioned of themselves, the first one being Louis Fourteenth, a picture of him yet again as the Sun King, picture designed to show off his wealth and power. Even the background is opulent, and the king himself is there, very impressive, in his coronation robes, although in fact this was painted some 40 years after his coronation. But he's wearing his embroidered robes, fleur-de-lis again, of course, and he has his crown nonchalantly sitting on a stool beside him. Nobody looking at that painting could forget that Louis was king. And then, of course, the other person who was very keen that we should all remember how important he was was Napoleon. And there's a massive canvas here by Jacques-Louis David, the title of which tells you everything that Napoleon wanted you to remember. So it's called Consecration of the Emperor Napoleon I and Coronation of the Empress Josephine in the Cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris on the 2nd of December, 1804. Jacques-Louis David was Napoleon's official artist and was commissioned to record this event for posterity. Napoleon wanted the whole thing done as the king's coronations before him had been done, with the exception, as you may remember from a previous episode, that he, having invited the Pope to come and crown him, took the crown and placed it on his own head, because actually he wanted to show his independence from the church and possibly his authority over the Pope. Perhaps I should say perceived authority. It's a massive canvas, something like 20 feet by 30 feet, 
All the important people from the day were there. Napoleon wanted that recorded too. They had all attended and agreed to his coronation. He had his mother painted in, which is actually quite amusing, because his mother didn't go. She made a point of arriving in Paris just a little too late to attend the ceremony, believing, as mothers often do, that her son was getting slightly above himself. The diplomats and the politicians might all go. She wasn't going to. Napoleon wasn't going to accept that, so he had her painted in anyway. And then fourth of the French historical paintings, perhaps the most well-known of them all, painting which I've seen described as the unofficial national painting of France, entitled in French La Liberté Guidant le Peuple, or Liberty Guiding the People, by Delacroix again. A painting which King Louis-Philippe decided was so dangerous that he ordered it should be hidden away. It's a picture of the July Revolution in Paris in 1830, three days when the people rose up against the king, Charles X, who had begun passing laws to suppress opposition. People, or the Republicans at least, were having none of that, and they revolted against him. Delacroix himself was a passionate Republican, and he painted this picture really to show that allegiance. It's very Parisian, you can see Notre Dame in the background, but what your eye is absolutely drawn to is the figure of Liberté herself, a strong, inspiring, bare-breasted woman, full of determination and fighting spirit, a French flag in one hand, the three-coloured tricolore, the three colours symbolising liberté, égalité, fraternité, and in the other hand, a gun. It's definitely a romantic painting. The female figure, liberté, or Marianne as she became to be known, is shown emerging from a dark background and appears to be bathed in light, a symbol to show that she was morally in the right. But in fact it's also a realistic painting, Marianne may be rising up, but there are broken bodies at her feet, representing the terrible struggle and the sacrifices that had to be made to fight against the monarchy. This painting, as well as inspiring Republicans everywhere, turned Marianne into the symbol of the French Republic. Her face it is that you used to see on the 100 franc note in pre-Euro days. She often appears on stamps, and there's a massive, massive statue of her in, where else, the Place de la République. It's even said that Marianne was the inspiration for the statue by Bartholdi, which became eventually the Statue of Liberty in New York. So, four very French paintings then. And I'd like to finish by just mentioning three more, also French paintings, not so much famous because of their historical content, but just good examples of the work of three other French artists across the centuries. The first one, the earliest of the three, was painted in 1635 and might be actually my favourite painting in the entire building and that's called The Cheat with the Ace of Diamonds by one Georges de la Tour. It's a gambling scene. There's a very flamboyantly dressed young man with a feather in his hat playing cards with some friends and we can all see, although he has no idea, that he's about to be cheated on. Two of the other characters are exchanging glances and one of them has her back to us, and we can see that behind her back she holds the Ace of Diamonds, which is going to be the winning card. It's said to be a moral drama about three temptations that were considered sins at the time, those of lust, of drinking too much, and of gambling. But I just love the way it captures that one very precise moment. We feel quite knowing, because we know something the main character in the painting hasn't discovered yet. And I just love the idea that as early as 1635, people were cheating at cards. 
and being caught in the act. Then there's a painting by Ingres from 1814 called The Grand Odalisque, a nude painting of a female figure said to have influenced artists down the decades after that, and especially in the Romantic era. So an Odalisque was a young woman who lived in a harem out in the east, a figure brimming with exoticism, suggestive of sexual availability in a way that Western women of the time were not portrayed as being. This reclining nude looks back over at us, over her shoulder. She's not wearing very much. She has an exotic-looking scarf wrapped around her head. She's wearing some bracelets. She's holding a feathered fan, but there isn't much more. And the sensuality of her body is partly due to the fact that Ingress is said to have made it longer than it ought to have been, given her five extra vertebrae. And so this was much talked about. Was this simply a striking study of female beauty? done in a way that seemed rather risque at the time? Or was this just another example of men warping the image of women and making it what they hoped it might be, rather than what it actually was? All of this meant that painters and viewers discussed this painting in detail, and it's become, therefore, very well known. And then the very last painting I wanted to focus on also dates from a very similar year, 1818 in this case, and it's by Théodore Géricault, and it's called The Raft of the Medusa, another massive canvas, again 20 feet by 30 feet, but a completely different subject matter and style. So firstly, it's depicting a real event, when a French frigate was wrecked off the coast of Mauritius, many of the sailors drowned, and more of them, about 150, ended up adrift on a raft and floating off across the sea. Very little food, practically no water, and so after a number of days, They were starving, they were led to desperate measures, murdering each other, and, it's thought, cannibalism. By the time rescue arrived, only 15 of the original 150 or so who had been on the raft still survived, and the thought was very much that they had done so because they had been eating the flesh of those who had died. And so all of this made the painting one of the most shocking things possible, a really harrowing work so very different from the subject matter tackled, in many cases, by other Romantic painters. One of those paintings that you can definitely describe as once seen, never forgotten. So then, we have touched really on only a very, very few of the 35,000 plus works of art to be found in the Louvre. We haven't made it anywhere near whole sections such as Egyptian antiquities or Islamic art, or indeed some of the European sections, Italian, Spanish... Northern European. But anyone who goes to the Louvre has a lot of choices to make about what to see. Perhaps you're going to make a short list of things you definitely want to see and set about finding where they are on the museum plan before you go. Maybe you're going to head to the French section and work your way through that. Maybe you're just going to wander and see what turns up. Whichever approach you choose, I think you have to accept that if it's a first visit to the Louvre, You won't do anything other than scratch the surface, see a few things, and perhaps be inspired to return. You could certainly go every week for years, and have plenty, plenty, plenty of wonderful things to look at and enjoy. That is more or less it for this week, but next week we're sticking with art, and going to take a more modern focus. The works in the Louvre end at 1848, the Musée d'Orsay, which we covered in a previous episode, covers most of the rest of the 19th century and a little way into the 20th, but for anything more modern than that, you will need to look elsewhere. 
So I'm going to focus on a couple of the very modern art museums, the Centre Pompidou, Pompidou Centre, also known as Beaubourg, and the Museum of Modern Art, and then do a mini roundup of a number of other art museums, which we won't be covering in detail. Some of them niche collections devoted to one artist or one collector, and spanning many centuries, beginning with very early tapestries to be seen at the Cluny Museum, right up to the examples of modern art which you can find wandering about on the Esplanade at La Défense. So you'll end up, hopefully, with a good picture of many different types of art and art museum to be enjoyed in Paris, none of which are that very famous institution which says Parisian art to the whole world, the one we've covered today, the Louvre. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about it. I hope you've been inspired to go or go again. And for the moment, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you very much for listening. Merci and bidding you goodbye. Au revoir.